0: Artsville, Artsville, the happening town, we're art abounds. of bounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town,
1: we're hard of bounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find
0: us, amazing artists and designers.
2: Welcome to the Artsville podcast, where we celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville, North Carolina and beyond. I'm Sourdough, and I'm joined with Louise Glickman and Daryl Slayton from Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville. How's it going today, guys? Are you excited about our episode?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Can't wait. it should be fun.
2: Oh, that's great. So who do we have today? I, I, I believe I know who we have, but our audience doesn't know who we have necessarily. So tell us, who do we have today?
1: Today, you're going to be introduced to Mia Hall, who is the director of the Penland School of Crafts, which is in Penland, North Carolina, but it's about an hour just outside of Asheville.
2: And this is a historic get, right? I mean, Penland is essential to the legacy and history of arts and crafts in Asheville, correct?
1: Well, Penland, if you're in the crafts field, this is where you go to learn, enjoy, Penland is actually the reason I moved to Asheville. I went there once. I walked into a studio. I saw what was going on. I smelled the paint, and I found an apartment three weeks later and moved.
2: <laughs> that was some paint. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
2: she, she keeps taking was classes the fumes? Was it the, fume, was it the paint or the fumes, Louise? <laughs> yeah, she keeps taking classes.
1: She's always happy <laughs> and when she comes back. Taking- <laughs> Yeah. And I've been taking classes there ever since. And they have an amazing number of programs, but also it is absolutely historic to how Asheville became Artsville because so many people stay there. They become resident artists there. They work there. And from that, they then buy property up at It's <laughs> an entire neighborhood. And all those people provide art that appears now at Marquee Collective, which is our Sand Hill Artist Collective partnership with Crew West Studio L.A.
2: Woohoo! Crew West Studio L.A. That would be us out here on the West Coast. And we are so delighted, honored, charmed, privileged, and grateful who have connected with Sandhill Artist Collective and have teamed up to co-produce and develop this podcast, Artsville, where we explain to people how Asheville became Artsville, right?
1: Right. I mean, that's the elevator speech, of course.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Daryl, before we get into this interview, because we don't want to belabor this, right? We know our audience is dying to hear all about Penland. But we know uh, Louise and her connection to Penland Have you ever taken any classes there, Daryl? Or have you ever gotten high on the fumes on the paint?
1: <laughs> I have taken Louise there and dropped her off. <laughs> 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 and then I come back and do whatever I want. <laughs> so, no, I'm not taking any classes there. <laughs>
2: Got you, got you. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a fantastic interview. I was honored to be able to conduct the interview. And so without any further ado, let's get into this fantastic episode with our friends over at Penland. Shall we?
1: Yes. Sounds great.
2: Let's go. Let's do it. Mia Hall, Robin Dreyer, welcome to Artsville. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to have you guys here. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule.
3: Oh, it's a real pleasure being here.
2: So, we are here today to celebrate and talk about the Penland School of Craft. And I'm so excited about this because in all candor, I've never been to Penland. I've recently learned about Penland and its rich history. And Mia, I understand that you are the executive director at Penland and you've been there for two years now. Is that correct?
3: Well, it feels like two years, but it's actually four. Time flies when you're having fun. (laughs)
2: Well, and boy, the last four years have been packed with all kinds of adventures, hasn't it?
3: Oh, that's true. That's an understatement.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, we'll get into that. And that may be a whole nother podcast. But I so look forward to hearing about your vision for Penland and the work you've been doing there over the last four years as the fairly new executive director after a rich history. But Robin, I also understand that you have a unique point of view on all of this, because I believe you, I mean, you grew up As I understand
0: it, you grew up around Penland as a young man. Is that correct? Depends on how you define young and how you define growing up, I guess. I moved to this area when I was 22, and I've lived here ever since. And I've worked at Penland since 1995. And you started
2: there as a teacher?
0: No, no. I'm the communications manager, and I've always had some version of that job. I've had a couple different titles over the years, and the job has grown quite a bit but I've always worked in communications and marketing here at Penland, although I have also been an instructor. And I'll just take that as a lead to quickly say one of the things that people usually don't understand about Penland unless we tell them is that we don't have a faculty. So we teach these craft workshops. They're all taught by guest instructors. So there's nobody who's on staff at Penland as a teacher. Each workshop is taught by an instructor who comes in for the same period of time that the students are there. So that's my history, plus just a little clarification about our structure.
2: Well, thank you for that, Robin, because that is an interesting, very distinctive aspect to the school, is it not? I mean, where does that come from? Is that sort of the legacy of the organization?
0: Yeah. Yes, it's been that way since the very beginning. The first instructor at Penland In its earliest version was a guy named Edward Wurst, who lived in Chicago and was an expert in hand weaving, and for a number of years came down to Penland every summer to teach weaving workshops. And that pattern has continued up to the present. The workshops are of a limited duration, and the instructors come in for that amount of time along with the students. Wow. What
2: a beautiful culture that is and and such a distinguishing attribute of the organization. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question that might be on the minds of our listeners out there. And Mia, I'm going to ask you this question. What is the fundamental difference between art and craft? Because it's (laughs) the Penland School of Craft, not the Penland School of Art. So please help me understand.
3: Well, that's a pretty uh, deep and fundamental question for sure. Because We've got all the time
2: we need, Mia. This is a podcast. We could go for hours. Go right ahead.
3: I often get that question, especially when I'm out and about talking about Penland, because we are a craft school. We're very proud of our heritage as a craft school. And we teach 12 different disciplines here. And all of the traditional craft disciplines, such as glass, and wood, iron, textiles, ceramics, I feel like I'm, I forgot one there, metals, small metals, jewelry. But we also teach photography and drawing and painting, printmaking, printing, papermaking, book arts. So I get the question, why are you teaching photography at a craft school? And the answer is always that there is craft in all art making. And as we talked about a little earlier before the podcast, we're very focused on the handmade all our classes here have a component to them that's focused on making. It's never just focused on a concept or the idea. There's always a making component to all our classes. We're also deeply rooted in materiality and technique and process. So that's what we focus on. So a discipline like photography has all of those components to it. They have all of those craft components to them. So we feel very comfortable to in- encompass the 2D disciplines under the craft umbrella as well.
2: Because as a neophyte, right? And I fully admitted early on, right? I'm coming to this as a newbie. I'm I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you guys because I want to learn today. I would have, if I had been on a game show and and this question had come up, I would have lost because I would have argued vehemently that craft is art and they're one and the same thing. And maybe a purist would have disagreed with me. I, I don't know. And I often wondered. I mean, is the difference the utility of craft? I mean, it feels like there's a utility to a pot or to you know that maybe a painting doesn't have. And I just wondered about where does that utility factor come in as a distinguishing attribute between art and craft.
3: Well, typically, if it is a utilitarian object, it is considered craft or Mm -hmm. even design because Mm -hmm. you would distinguish between craft and design as well. However, it's dangerous to say that if an object does not have utility, it's not craft because that's not entirely true either. We certainly teach a lot of sculpture classes here. We're set up so that it's not so much about the practice it is more about a material so we mm. have our clay studio for example but in our clay studio we teach everything from pottery to sculpture so you can't really say that if an object is utilitarian it's craft and if it's not it's art because it just doesn't follow along those lines either
2: see this is all very complicated for a simple-minded man like me this is why i call it art <laughs> <You
0: Yeah. know>? <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to tag on to what Mia was saying just a little bit and add that if I had been on that game show with you, I might have made the same argument because I think craft and art exist on a continuum and there's so much overlap that trying to make a real distinction is often kind of pointless. And I think we define ourselves as a craft school for exactly the reasons that Mia said. It's because our programs are built around materials and processes and that's where that identity comes from. But in terms of actually distinguishing between craft and art in the world, in my experience, I feel like that's a distinction that is made more strongly by the academic art world than it is by anybody in craft. People who work in traditional craft disciplines generally refer to themselves and think of themselves as artists. And as Mia was saying, Our clay studio teaches everything from making bowls to making figurative sculpture. The way that I love to think about Penland in terms of this continuum is that I think by being a craft school, we pitch a bigger tent than if we defined ourselves as an art school, because by being a craft school, we exclude almost nothing. Whereas you brought up the subject of utility, and I think in the, particularly in the academic art world, there's kind of a prejudice against anything that'll hold water. (laughs) And once something will do something like that, then it's a little suspect as to whether that's actually art. Whereas at Penland, I feel like people appreciate the beautiful silhouette and the carefully made lip of a fantastic bowl just as much as the gesture that you might see in a piece of figurative art, figurative sculpture. And those are kind of put on the same plane. And I feel like we can do that because we're a craft school, which means we don't have to make that distinction and we don't have to exclude anything.
3: Yeah, that's very well put, Robin. And I just wanted to add that during my four years here at Penland, I think I've had this discussion maybe five or six times. One would think that we sit around and talk about this all the time, but we really don't. The first time we really had this discussion about what is art versus craft was when we changed our name. We used to be the Penland School of Crafts, and we wanted to take off the S and become the Penland School of Craft. And we had a really healthy and robust discussion about what is craft and why are we a craft school. Other than that, it's come up a couple of times in panel discussions, but it's not really something that we spend a lot of time defining because it's just not important to the artists here at Penland to figure out whether they're an artist or a craftsperson, because I think we all consider ourselves artists first and foremost. And we're artists that use craft materials at times. And sometimes we use materials that don't fall under the craft umbrella.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Mia, 90 years, right? So Penland is 90 years old?
3: 92 to be ninety-two.
2: Exact. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So there's a lot of pressure I'm guessing that you feel as an executive director to sort of take on the responsibility of nurturing this beloved organization, because, of course, you have to respect the history and the heritage and the legacy, and yet you have to bring it into the future. And we're in a digital future now. Over the weekend, I was at a panel discussion, with a bunch of artists who were ex- really excited about NFTs. <laughs> so we're, we're living in this crazy world of, of technology. I mean, talk a little bit about how you're feeling uh, four years on now as executive director and the pressure you feel and the vision you have and how you navigate that.
3: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Yes, we're 92 years old. Uh, we've got a long and wonderful history. Penland started out with our founding director, and she was here for quite some time. She was the one who who founded the school and organized the first workshop here. In the 60s, we had a second director come in, and he came in from academia and had a, a new vision for the school, and he really cemented the programming here at Penland. He brought in some new disciplines and a new vision and started our core fellowship program, which is a really wonderful program where Artists come and stay here for two years. They live and work at the school and take classes. They're the first ones who get to pick classes. So they chart their own educational path, so to speak. And he started an artist residency. And 20 years ago, that was our sixth director, but another very important director because she came in and really developed the infrastructure here at Penland. The school 25 years ago was indefinite need of some new buildings and some modernization and spent 20 years building pretty much an unparalleled campus. So our studios are for the most part new. They're well-equipped. So here I am, the seventh director. And of course, I want to look back and think about what I will have contributed the day I retire. And I see it as my job to turn Penland a little inwards We've focused outwards for a very long time and put a lot of time and effort into making the school what it is. And it is uniquely situated to turn that lens inwards. And what I mean by that is to focus on the people who work here, who come here to study, to live here and create here. We have not been as diverse and as open to underserved populations as we should have. And that has been plaguing the whole craft field for a very long time and Penland as well. So right now it's time for us to look at how we can change and how we can make Penland more accessible, how we can remove some barriers and just be more inviting, more inviting to cultures other than the ones who have traditionally been included under the craft tent. It's been a very Eurocentric view for a long time, and we're slowly making our way through that work. We want to be very careful, and we want to make sure that the changes we're putting in place are the right changes, and that we have the infrastructure and the funding to make them last. So those are the challenges, is how do you take an institution like this and simply make it more accessible? How do you tear down barriers when the barriers are so often Economic barriers. It means an enormous amount of fundraising, and it means an enormous amount of letting our supporters and our philanthropic partners know what's important and and get them as excited as we are about funding that future.
2: What you just talked about is so important, and you see this happening in industries uh, across the country, in our own culture, as this country is demographics are changing. And I so appreciate the thoughtfulness that I'm hearing in your voice about this issue, because I feel like sometimes that organizations rush into this without being thoughtful. And it can sometimes smack as not as perhaps sincere. (laughs) And it certainly can't come across as opportunistic, right? It has to be thought through and design in a way that is makes it sustainable and makes it sincere and believable as well, right? Because I mean it's it, you hear about this in entertainment, you hear about this in the art world. I was having a conversation with someone the other day about this issue because so many galleries now want to show black artists and it's like, okay, that's great, but are you doing it for the right reasons or is this just a business opportunity? And so I can hear that you're taking this so seriously and you know, kudos to you because not only are you Grappling with the 90 year old history of the organization within this larger context of the craft movement. But you're also in the hills of Western North Carolina, and there's the history there as well that you're battling against, right?
3: Yep, very much so. And it's a very remote location. So traveling out here, it can feel like an obstacle, especially if you're coming from an urban area. Mm. However, the drive is beautiful and the mountains are gorgeous and, and it's well worth the trip up here. But mm. we're, we're very aware of the fact that when someone takes a look at our catalog for the first time and they look at the map and they're thinking, you want me to go where? <laughs> and, mm. and we're trying to convince people that, that yes, come out here. It is a wonderful community. It's a very inclusive community once you arrive at Penland but that is one of our obstacles. And that is one of the many conversations we're having both with our staff, with our supporters and with our board, you know, how can we tear down some of these barriers and make it more accessible?
2: That's wonderful. Robin, I have a question for you because Mia has talked about the beautiful location that you guys are in. It's remote, it's rural. It sounds spectacular. It sounds incredibly beautiful. Robin, can you paint a picture for us? What exactly Does the campus feel like and look like? Can you describe the
0: environment? Sure, I'll just start by saying because people who come to Penland a lot talk about this all the time. You drive down a what used to be a two lane but is now a four lane road a long ways. It feels like out into the country, and then you turn onto a two lane road that's extremely windy, and you drive on that for. 10 minutes or so. And then you turn onto an even smaller two-lane road that's steep and windy and goes up a hill inside kind of a tunnel of trees back and forth and back and forth. And then it flattens out and straightens out a little bit. And then there's this moment where you drive out of the trees and you're looking across this huge meadow that kind of has a rolling hill in the middle of it Spot we refer to as the knoll, so it just it opens way up, and there's this large grassy meadow, and across from that you see this peculiar-looking village of buildings that are going up the side of this hill. So that's kind of the first impression everybody has when they get to Penland, and when people return to Penland, they frequently talk about looking forward to that moment when they drive out of the trees, and look across this meadow at the campus going up the side of the hill. So then once you get into our main campus, we have buildings kind of, you'd have to say scattered, although we have built, as Mia mentioned, a bunch of new buildings in the last few years. And that's been done with a lot of care and a lot of intent. But we also have buildings that go back 100 years. And so... We have this collection of buildings, which are mostly studios. Some of them are housing because people live here while they're in the workshops. And they're clustered in various ways, and they are of a number of different ages. So just as we have students of a number of different ages working together in the same studios, we have buildings of a a number of different ages and architectural styles and materials that are clustered together to make the center part of our campus. Most of our buildings face south and have porches on the south side of them. And as I said, the campus kind of goes up a hill, and to the south is this meadow. So it's the campus is open on that side. So we have all these buildings where you can step outside and stand on a porch and look down across other buildings and out across this beautiful meadow, and then there are mountain ranges off in the distance. And then there are walkways. In between the buildings, the campus is mostly traversed on foot, and then there are outdoor spaces where people can gather, and there's a large building at one corner of the center campus that houses our kitchen and dining hall and coffee shop, and so that's a place where people are are gathering several times a day for meals. And that's kind of the overview that I can give you, and it's a beautiful place, It's also a place that really encourages a lot of interaction. Like I said, the buildings are kind of clustered and people move from one building to another and run into other people and look at each other's work. There's something just in the actual makeup of the campus that fosters a sense of community.
3: And what I've always really appreciated about our campus here and our architecture in particular is the somewhat eclectic mix, that we have a very thorough campus master plan. And yet there is what was at one time coined a disorderly, oh, Robin, what is the term? Oh, we'll come back to it. But it's a little chaotic at times, but there's definitely an order to the chaos. But what I really like about it is that you have a building that has this very sort of modern, sleek, metal siding, cladding next to an old log structure that is the oldest log structure in Western North Carolina. And we care for both and we love both equally, even though they're so very different. And it just sets the tone when you come onto campus, because when you look at our programming, we pay a lot of attention to tradition, but we also pay equal attention to innovation. So it is this this happy meeting point of very old tradition and what is new and what is fresh in the craft world. And I think the campus speaks very eloquently about that meeting or that merger that happens here. And it's true for artists. We have people who have had long, illustrious careers and they come here to teach or to take classes and they're sitting next to a rank beginner who's not just here for the first time, but who may be touching clay for the very first time. And I think it's that meeting of ages and cultures and and, uh, backgrounds that makes it for a very vibrant and interesting place. And it's true for ages too. We have people from 18 through 80, though we have people who are older than 80 who take classes here, but they come together and there is a mutual respect of the lived experience and where people are coming from. And it just makes for a very creative and, and stimulating environment.
2: It sounds remarkable. And it sounds like it must be very difficult for people when they have to leave <laughs> because it sounds like a magical place that you're describing. How many students can you have on, in class or on campus at any one time? I guess, what is your occupancy in terms of student body?
3: We have 16 studios here, Mm -hmm. so we would never schedule more than 16 classes at a time. And Mm -hmm. typically, we don't run all 16, but close, close to that. Most studios hold 12 seats, Mm -hmm. so about 12 students and an instructor. So we're trying to keep the number of students in a class at a very good level. There's something to be said for having too few, because then you're lacking energy. Mm -hmm. Too many and it it becomes chaotic and the instructor doesn't have time for everyone. So the magic number seems to be around 10 or 12. And I agree with that. My previous life was in academia. So Mm -hmm. I spent 12 years in the academic classroom and being faced with 30 students on the first day of class, knowing that you had to get through an art class with them in 16 weeks was terrifying at best because you knew that you're never going to get to know all of them. But here with 12 people, an instructor can really spend some time with each student and really pay attention to their individual needs. So that means that a full session for us, will have about 200 students and instructors joining our 70 staff. And then we have some artists in residence and, and our core fellows, and that's another 15 people. So on a very full session, there's... About 300 people on the mountain, and that's quite a bit for our little village. It's not so many that it becomes chaotic and tight. It's mm. just right. And throughout a year, we see about 1,500 students come through our classes here.
2: So I love the fact that it's so thoughtfully curated, and you guys have really figured out that formula to calibrate, right, exactly the experience that is going to give the students the best Return on their investment there. Yes. And so but I'm guessing that that would imply to use economic terms, you know, demand outstrips supply. Right. There's probably way more students that want to come to Penland than actually you have space for in a given period. What is the application process? How do you find your students and how do you choose your students?
3: Well, I think it's really important for me to let you all know that half our students here at Penland are here on some type of financial assistance. So we have a very big and robust scholarship program, and that is important because to run a place like Penland is certainly not cheap, and therefore the cost of attending a class is not cheap either. Is it worth it? Absolutely. It's worth every penny. But it can be a barrier to come here and attend classes. So therefore, we have a very good scholarship program. And we have different types of scholarships, everything from full scholarships through work-study opportunities. We have students who come here and assist in the studios and and help the instructors with the class. And we have work-study students who come and help with our dining service and some other tasks that need to be taken care of across campus. So our application period for the summer will open early in the new year, and the scholarship applications will open here soon. And that means it is now November when we're talking, so the scholarship application opens in December. And the deadline for summer scholarships is in February. Our application period is a rolling application. So once we open early in the year, you can apply until all the seats are filled, which for some classes that can be as quickly as 15 minutes after we open. But often there are seats in many of our classes. We have good enrollment, but there are always seats open in so many interesting classes. So during the summer we have workshops that range from 1 to 2 weeks and then during the fall we run one-week classes, we run six-week classes, and some weekend classes as well. And then in the spring, again, we do some one-week classes weekend and an eight-week concentration, which is very popular as well. You apply online. There's really no application process more than enrolling. We don't look at portfolios or anything like that. We really believe that the Penland experience is for everyone, Some of the scholarships, however, do have a bit of a merit component to them, but the majority of our scholarships are open to anyone who wants to experience Penland, so there's no need for a slick portfolio or anything like that. You can just go online and apply, and that's all done through our website.
2: I love that. So you're an inclusive organization. I mean, you're not trying to be exclusive. Although you may have a rich heritage and legacy and reputation, but so much of that heritage and reputation is rooted in being inclusive rather than exclusive.
0: And I want to expand that just a little bit, just to say that something that we hear people say with alarming frequency is, oh, I would love to go to Penland, but I'm not good enough. And I think because a lot of beautiful work gets produced here and we put out catalogs and if you look at our website there's all this high level craft being represented which is work by our instructors because we have these marvelous instructors who make fantastic work and i would also say that the atmosphere here is is serious people work hard they really apply themselves they do things that they didn't think that they could do so i think people pick up on the seriousness and on the high caliber of the instruction, and deduce from that, that this is not for me, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough to be at this place. And frequently, the people I hear say that are precisely the kind of people that we would love to have here as students. And they are projecting this onto themselves exactly because they are interested in doing something and take it a little bit seriously and feel like, well, surely all those people must be way better than I am. And of course, there is a legitimate fear that, you know, maybe I'll get there and everyone else will be better than me and I'll feel bad. But we do what we can to counteract this because we really do welcome everybody. And we really do welcome beginners into almost all of our workshops. We have a very few that because of their technical nature and they are intermediate level, but mostly we list our workshops as all levels, which means that beginners are absolutely welcome. And the only thing that we discourage is people coming to Penland and looking at it as one component of their vacation. So maybe they'll go to Penland class for a couple of days and then spend the third day shopping in Asheville. That's not so great because, as I said, the atmosphere in these workshops is pretty intense, and people work really hard, and a lot goes on, and you you have to apply yourself. But that does not mean you have to bring with you some high level of existing skill. So we always like to really make sure that that's clear. Mm. Thank you for
2: that. Robin, can you tell us about the new Penland Gallery and Visitor
0: Center? Sure. So Penland's had a little gift shop that sort of morphed into a gallery since sometime in the 90s, maybe in the late 80s. And Even before that, going way back, there was a little room that was a gift shop that had some craft items. But starting in the late 90s, we moved the gallery to this beautiful old building that our campus architect referred to as the prow of the ship, because it's the first building you get to when you come up the hill. So we moved the gallery to that building and expanded it quite a bit and really started to view the gallery not as a gift shop, not just as a place for people to shop, but as a place for us to really present the range of the kind of work that gets made at Penland. So there's work in the gallery by instructors, by people who have been students, by people who have been resident artists here. And then we also started presenting four or five times a year, an invitational curated exhibition around a theme. And these were very beautifully put together exhibitions that might be around a certain medium or a certain idea. So then, well, it was, I guess, five or six years ago now, the building that the gallery is in was completely renovated. And in that process, so we shut the gallery down for a year. And we completely renovated the building and, in the process of that, built a new wing onto it that's a large room with white walls and nice light in it. And that's where we put our larger exhibitions now. And then the other thing we did at that point is that we took a section of the gallery and really designated it as the Visitor Center Gallery. And that room has an exhibition that has to do with the campus, with the history of the school, with the program. So it's really a presentation of what the school is rather than simply being more of a gallery. And attached to that section of it is also a video room where we have a a nice big screen TV and a number, just a, a whole series of videos people can watch that are about the school or that are profiles of instructors, that kind of thing. So it's really a great place for people to visit now because it covers these three different areas. We have these highly curated invitational exhibitions that we present, and then we have a large area that's just a whole dizzying array of different kinds of work for sale. And then this visitor center gallery that's really about what the school is and what the educational program is. And it's how we welcome the public. Somewhat to the disappointment of some people who come up here, the studios that we teach in are not generally open to the public. And that's because people have paid money and taken time out from their lives to be getting this instruction and they're working hard and they don't need to be interrupted by people wandering through, wondering what they're doing. So we don't have that, but we do have this gallery and visitor center that we encourage people to come to and they can get a really rich experience without even buying anything.
3: And one thing that COVID absolutely did for us was further develop our web shop. So there is so much work available online now, and we're seeing a big uptick in people who are willing to shop virtually. I find it really hard to shop craft objects without having been able to handle them because so many of these objects are about touching them and handling them and the functional aspects of it. But we're seeing that people are willing to do that now. And that means that our reach is a little further because we are a little remote out here, and it's a bit of a long trek to come up to the gallery, but the gallery can come to you through our web shop.
2: Well, and we don't want the dollars to go to the Asheville uh, boutique. We want, do- we want the dollars to stay in the uh, Penland uh, oh gift God. shop gallery and <laughs> visitor oh, center. You bet. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you mm. know, Mia, I mean, My gosh, I mean, there's so much here, and it seems like none of this would be possible, right, if it weren't for your amazing patrons, underwriters, fundraisers, your donors. Let's celebrate them for a minute. I mean, let's talk about, and not just your donors and your supporters, but maybe even the board. I mean, who are the amazing human beings that help Penland be Penland?
3: Oh, we have an absolutely remarkable board it's a fairly large board for a nonprofit. It's 33 individuals and they have been chosen for their individual skills and their passion for craft and education and experiential learning, which is what we're all about here, and their love and care for tradition and the artists in the area. They bring so much to the collective knowledge of Penland because they come from so many different areas. They're are lawyers, philanthropists, artists, educators, they come from all over, mostly from North Carolina or the East Coast. But we do have a few people from the middle of the country and and even out in California. So yes, without the board, it would be impossible to run this place. It takes a lot of vision and leadership to steer this big ship. So I'm very grateful for our board The other thing that COVID showed us was the faithfulness of our supporters. We were so afraid when COVID hit that our supporters would just kind of drop off and that our annual giving would dry up because everybody was fighting for their own livelihood. But we saw the complete opposite. People really stepped up and helped us in small ways and in really big ways. And we made it through so there's just so much love for this place and the history of this place. I think it, it goes a little further than just Penland itself. It is about what we represent and the fact that the act of making and being active with your hands, it's something that's kind of dying off. It's it's disappearing from school. So we're seeing new generations who've never touched clay. They've never made a bad pinch pot gift for their parents in third grade, And that's alarming because how can they know that they want to come to a school like Penland if they've never even touched these materials? So that's something that I'm a little worried about in the next 20, 30 years. How are we going to entice the next generation to be engaged with craft? But we're also seeing that in this moment in time, there is such a desire to come to a place like Penland and just slow down, even though we talked about the intensity of being at Penland, but it's a different kind of intensity. It is an act of slowing down and removing everything else from your life because you come here, you stay on campus, we feed you, you know, you go to your studio, you stay in a room here on campus, so everything else can be put on pause and you can just focus deeply. And it's so unusual that people have an opportunity to do that today. And that is something that we're seeing a real desire for and a real desire to return to after COVID. So we have people that are very supportive of that practice and also of our educational pedagogy that is such a counterpoint to the academic system. So yes, we're incredibly grateful for all the Hundreds of people that step up annually and support Penland and some of the foundations that step up in big, big ways and supporting us annually and through foundation endowment gifts. It's it's what makes Penland operate.
0: That's fantastic. Also important to note, we get support from our state of North Carolina. Yes. (laughs) Through the North Carolina Arts Council. And then I just also want to mention... Another group of people who are integral to Penland who, even though we pay them, they qualify as contributors, as donors, as supporters, and that's our instructors. It's about 150 or 160 different individuals who come through Penland every year as instructors. And they do get paid, but you don't want to too carefully divide how much they get paid by the amount of time. You're there. not paying Ooh. them
2: what they're worth, Robin. You're not, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs>
0: I'm trying not to say that too blatantly. Yes, we're not paying what what they're worth. These incredibly generous people who are wonderful makers, who are wonderful teachers, who come here and just give everything away. The spirit of generosity in these workshops is just incredible. And they start months ahead of time preparing for a workshop. And then when they're here, you see instructors in there early in the morning. You see them in the studio still late at night. And it's the gift of their expertise and knowledge and their ability to manage a group of people and make everybody happy that really makes what we do possible. They are also among our most important and generous supporters because they really make what we do here possible.
3: And what is so remarkable about some of, or actually all of our instructors is you can walk up to pretty much any one of them and ask them for all their secrets, and they will tell you. I've never come across anyone here saying, no, that's trademarked, or I don't want to tell you that because I don't want you to have that knowledge. As Robin said, the act of generosity or the generosity of spirit here, it is what makes Penland what it is. And this is true for all the craft schools, these summer craft programs, because it's the same instructors that are often traveling to several schools. But yes, Robin, I'm so glad you brought that up because without the 160 artists coming through here, Penland wouldn't exist. That's the backbone of our whole operation. So I'm glad you jumped in.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, Mia and Robin, I'm so grateful for this time together. I have learned so much and I want to be respectful of your time as we sort of wrap up here a little bit. I'm going to put you both on the spot. This might be the most difficult question that we've had this whole session here. And I'm going to put you both on the spot a little bit. And I'm trying to debate in my own, own mind who I'm going to put on the spot first, Robin or Mia. But I want to hear your best Penland story. When you think about 90 years of history, when you think about everything, you know, good, bad, and indifferent, <laughs> you know, and if, you know, if you're being forced as, as I'm trying to force you now, To pick one of these stories that comes to mind, that makes you happy, that gives you some delight about Pinland. What is your favorite story, Robin?
0: Okay, you're going to have to edit out a long pause here. (laughs) Because i got to think for a second. Okay. Okay.
3: Well, while Robin thinks, I can't really pull out just the one story because there's so many. But what I keep hearing from people is that... Penland changed my life, or even Penland saved my life. And at first, when I started coming to Penland, I thought, wow, that's a big statement right there. Penland changed my life. And then I started working here and I started seeing that. I started seeing everything from young artists to artists who might have retired and want to try on something new in retirement. And they come here and they get changed because they find a community. They find like-minded people. And one of our board members, Tim Tate, always tells that story. When he came to Penland, it's probably 30 years ago now, as a young gay man who wasn't entirely out and, and couldn't find his supportive community and came to Penland and really found that in a profound way. And he credits his time here at Penland with having both saved his life and having changed his life. So I think it is a really remarkable place. And there's so many components that bring that all together, but it's all about the people here because without the people, it would only be be fantastic buildings and they can't tell a story. But the community around here Both the people that come and go and the people who live in this community and work and create here at Penland are some of the most generous, remarkable and creative people I've ever met in my life. So maybe by now, Robin has pinpointed a story because Robin has been here so much longer than I have. And Robin has all the good stories.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to pull up three little things that all sort of touch on different areas. And the first is that we have, at the end of every session, we have an auction that supports our scholarship program and people donate work. The instructors and the students who've been here for the session donate work, and then we sell it back to them. (laughs) It's beautiful. And (laughs) so I have from time to time been the auctioneer at these. And I remember this, Startling, kind of startling moment when I was an auctioneer at one of these events, and I was selling a piece of it was a wooden sculpture, a painted wooden sculpture, a beautiful piece. And the instructor, of course, was present. He had been here teaching. And I asked him to come up and explain something about the piece. And while he was talking, it just struck me that because I've worked here for a while, that I had first met this man when he was a student here. And so here I was standing up in front of this whole session and he was talking about this piece of work that he had made while he was here teaching. And I sort of put my arm around him and said, look, I just have to add that I met this guy when he was a student and we're growing our own instructors at this place, (laughs) (laughs) which made a big impression on me. Mm. And then a second thing that I will say is that some years ago there was a woman She was an older woman in her 60s, I think, 70s maybe, and she was an Episcopalian minister. And she showed up every summer and took clay classes. And a friend of mine who was teaching commented to me that although she was an amateur, she was one of the most serious students that he'd ever taught. So I ran into her and I was just asking her about her relationship with clay and with making pots. And I said, well, what kind of studio do you have at home? And she said, oh, I don't have a studio at home. I only make pots at Penland. And she said, I come almost every summer and I spend two weeks here making pots and this is where I make pots. But this was a person who the instructor had told me was one of the best and most serious students that he'd ever had. And I just felt like that spoke so beautifully to the inclusive nature of what we do here and the way Penland touches people's lives. And I said I was going to pull up three, and now I've forgotten what the third one was. So
2: you bit off more than you could chew, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you what, those two stories are quite poignant, and it helps to make real this amazing organization that I'm so grateful to learn about today. And I know our audience is as well. And we want people to come to Penland. And as a practical matter, and I'm already now sort of plotting and planning my visit as soon as possible. So that I can manage my time, how long is the drive from Asheville to Penland?
3: From the Asheville airport up to Penland, uh, it's about an hour and 20 minutes.
2: Mm -hmm. A beautiful drive, I'm sure.
3: Absolutely. Takes about a little over two hours from Charlotte. Most people drive when they come out to campus just because, like you said, it is such a beautiful drive. But for the people that fly, it is quite easy to get from either Asheville or from Charlotte, we have something called the Mitchell County Transport that will pick up people at the airports and bring them up to Penland.
2: Well, Mia and Robin, before we sign off today, I just want to give you one last chance. Uh, You've been so generous with your time and we've talked about so much and there's still so much to talk about. But is there any parting thoughts, anything you'd like to share before we sign off today?
0: I will give you one. I think that people making things with their hands, I think that really matters in the world. Using your hands and your mind together, especially in the company of other people who are interested in the same things, it's a beautiful experience. And I think it really matters that people continue to work with these materials and to know how to use tools and to understand that they can continue learning things their whole lives. And that reminds me of the third little story I was See how this tell you, goes? See? Which is very I'm short, good, right? I'm good. <laughs> which is that I was standing in the print studio, and this young man was in there working. He was in a woodcut class, and it was something he'd never done before. And he was making these pretty great little prints that were a picture of one of his dogs. So he had brought a photograph of his dog, and he was making this print that he had cut into a woodblock. And I was looking at him and said, God, this is really good. And he just sort of looked at me for a second and said, I never imagined I could do anything like this. Hmm. So I'll leave you with that.
2: Yeah. Well, there you go. That's Pinlin, right? That's
0: a beautiful ending. Thank you,
3: Robin.
2: Fantastic. Well, Mia Hall, Robin Dreyer, I am so grateful that I was able to spend this time with you today. Thank you so much for telling us about Pinlin. And helping us here at Artsville celebrate and elevate the contemporary arts and crafts movement there at Penland, And we're so grateful. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Thanks.
2: Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond.
0: Artsville,
2: Artsville, the happening Town, we're art abounds, of bounds. Artsville,
0: Artsville, from Asheville Town, we're part of bounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring, North Carolina.
2: That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Yeah.